Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. An expert that can really help us go through things we really need to know about our gut health and the microbiome. Welcome, Dr. Vivian Chen. Our detox organs, it's your liver, it's your kidneys, it's your sweat glands, it's your lymph, it's your lungs, right? All of these organs help to eliminate toxins that we come across. If your organs are not functioning efficiently, then you can start to get the buildup of these levels in your body. It's when the tipping point comes that you get symptoms. So the time leading up to that, you may feel nothing and therefore you think you're fine. And that's what happened with me. The detox organs are working 24-7. So when people say, I'm going to detox or I'm going to detox my liver, well, no, you don't need to do that. The organs are already working. Do we just need to support them so that they work optimally for us? I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Now, here's Dr. Shala with The Truth About Toxins. Today's episode is all about the gut microbiome, and we go into a little bit about how our diet, stress, and toxins impact the health of our gut. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit before the episode about why the health of the gut microbiome is so important for fertility. First, what is the microbiome? The microbiome is made up of trillions of bacteria, fungi, viruses, and other microbes. And there's many different types, could be hundreds of varieties. And that is what makes up the diversity. These microbes have the ability to impact the functions of our body, whether it be our immune system, our metabolism, and then they have the ability to now shift us towards optimal health or to disease. There's still a lot more research to come in this area, and we're still in the infancy, but only really in recent years have we started to discover how the gut microbiome can impact fertility. Each organ system has its own microbiome. For example, the vagina or the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, have their own resident bacteria. It was once thought not too long ago that the uterus was a sterile environment, but it's now known that the uterus, in fact, has its own microbes and that if you have an overgrowth of abnormal bacteria or you have not enough of the healthy bacteria, that in fact may impact implantation and could reduce your chances of pregnancy. The bacteria in the vagina are also very important. And there are studies that link low diversity of the species of bacteria found in the vagina to preterm birth and other pregnancy-related complications. The gut microbiome actually has a role in controlling circulating levels of one of our hormones, estrogen. It can be impaired when our gut is damaged. 
and then it can contribute to conditions like endometriosis, PCOS, and possibly other causes of infertility. Now, a great example of how the microbiome impacts fertility is illustrated with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is one of the most common causes of infertility. PCOS is a disorder of ovulation in which patients have two of the following three criteria for diagnosis. Irregular periods, evidence of elevated male hormones, and ovaries that appear polycystic on ultrasound. Now, we don't know what the cause of PCOS is, but it seems that it's a combination of genes and our environment. We also know that there's a relationship between our gut microbiome and metabolic disorders like obesity, type 2 diabetes, and PCOS. The connection between the gut microbiome and PCOS symptoms is still not understood. But there is evidence to show that the diversity of the gut microbiome is reduced amongst those with PCOS. The reduced diversity is linked to increased male hormones that's found in the bloodstream and impaired metabolism of blood sugar. Now, we don't know if the reduced diversity of the bacteria is a product of having PCOS or is this possibly a cause of PCOS. What we do know is that lifestyle interventions are first-line treatment for PCOS. So that means we're looking at how do you sleep, your nutrition, your environmental toxin exposure, exercise, and stress levels. Now, here's the thing. All of those things can impact your gut microbiome and in turn can regulate metabolism. So what we eat can impact the diversity of our gut microbiome. For example, eating a diet that's highly processed, which includes foods that are higher in sugar and processed oils, can result in issues with our gut microbiome, which in turn can then impact male hormone levels and then impact ovulation. There's also research to support that another condition endometriosis may be tied to altered gut microbiome. So endometriosis is an inflammatory condition driven by the hormone estrogen, in which tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is found implanted outside of the uterus. It's estimated to impact about 10% of the population, but estimates show as high as 50% of those who are struggling with infertility. And in fact, there are some doctors that actually think that these numbers are underreported. So there's research to show that those with endometriosis have reduced diversity of the gut microbiome, but it's unknown if this is related to the symptoms or the severity of disease. Now, I could probably dedicate several episodes to the gut microbiome, and perhaps I will in future episodes. But I hope that this episode will give you some information on how to support your gut microbiome to help support optimal health and wellness, which in turn will help to support your fertility. I hope you enjoy the episode. On today's episode, I have Dr. Vivian Chen. Dr. Chen is a UK doctor with over 15 years of clinical experience. She's board certified in the UK in both internal medicine and family practice, and her world turned upside down when her daughter was hospitalized soon after being born with symptoms that no doctor could figure out. Through doing her own research, she was able to help her daughter recover. She also realized that the many years of chronic fatigue, acne, and brain fog that she had was due to environmental toxicity. This opened the world of root causes that she had never considered before as a conventional medical doctor. When she moved to San Francisco, she decided to coach clients back to health virtually to identify root causes and implement lifestyle solutions. She's also on a mission now to help people reduce their toxin load because she believes environmental toxins to be a very important root cause of many chronic conditions. So nowadays, it's a lot more common that we hear about 
the microbiome and gut health, but there's so much noise out there. What should we eat? What supplement should we take? Especially on social media, there's also a lot of things that are not really based in science. So I wanted to bring on an expert that can really help us go through things we really need to know about our gut health and the microbiome. Welcome, Dr. Vivian Chen. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Salem. It's my pleasure. Why do you think it's so important for us to pay attention to the health of our gut? Well, I believe that it's central to our overall health. I don't know a single organ system that isn't affected by gut health. We didn't learn this, at, well, at least I didn't learn this at medical school. I did go to medical school quite a long time ago, so things may have Same. changed. Right? <laughs> Hopefully it's changing. But I think we need to get out of this mindset, right, that our organ systems are in compartments. I mm-hmm. learned at medical school, there's the cardiovascular system, the neurological system, but the organ systems, they're not separate. Right? The whole body's connected. So one connects to the other, and the gut is actually connected to so many different organs and can impact every single organ in the body. So we now know that, for example, there is a very intimate connection between gut health and immune health. And it makes sense because 70 to 80% of our immune system is actually in the gut. It's where we first encounter a lot of pathogens and things we don't want in our bodies. So the immune system's there to defend us against these potential offenders. So if the gut is compromised, the first thing that's going to be impacted is your immune system. And then downstream from that, if you have leaky gut, there could be endotoxins, so toxins from inside of our gut, the bacteria in the gut, leaking into our bloodstream, causing generalized inflammation. And from inflammation, that can then lead to hormonal dysregulation, brain fog, neurological symptoms, It can affect our fertility, our weight. There's so many different aspects that are connected to gut health. So as Hippocrates famously said, I don't know, a couple of thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. all disease begin in the gut. I don't know that all diseases do, but I feel like a lot of chronic diseases do. Yeah, there's definitely influence of the gut. And I think it's been ignored, as you said. That's something we didn't learn too much about when we went through medical school. It's connected to the immune system. I'm sure we saw some of that in what happened in the last year with the pandemic. Right. So many people with damaged microbiome and poor gut health. I think that's part of the reason why we saw such an explosion in our country. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a paper that was published that showed that those with dysbiosis or damaged gut had an increased likelihood to have more severe forms of the disease. Yeah, I think it's really something super important to pay attention to, which is why, you know, I have you here today to discuss this. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in medicine in the first place? Of course. So I have always known I wanted to be a doctor from a very early age. So from I think when I was about 12, 13, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. At 13, I moved from Taiwan to the UK. So I went to medical school in the UK. And in the UK, we don't need to do undergrad. So I went straight into medical school. It's five years there. I did an extra year in neuroscience because I was interested Mm -hmm. in the brain. And when I graduated, I went into a residency, firstly in general medicine. So 
it's internal medicine, got board certified in that. And then I thought, oh, I really miss treating my patients, getting to know my patients, right? Because in, in internal medicine, you treat mainly acute illness in the hospital setting, well, in, at least in the UK right. anyway. And I didn't get to know them. So I switched to family practice, got board certified in that. Actually, sorry, I skipped. I, I also did two years of residency training in dentology as well because I had an interest in that. And then oh. I switched to family medicine. So I've been through quite a lot of different specialties. And then I landed in family practice. I practiced for know, seven, eight years before I moved to the U.S. So I now live in California. But along the way, I got more and more disillusioned because in family practice, mm -hmm. the bulk of our work is chronic disease management. And I really didn't feel like I was truly helping my patients. Yeah. With their chronic conditions, I was, you know, prescribing a lot of different medications and you know, many of these medications gave them side effects. It wasn't getting to the root cause. And right about the same time, I had children and my children did have severe anaphylactic mm -hmm. food allergies. So that led me to think about why food allergies happen in the first place. And that actually was my segue into gut health because... This is 13 years ago, I came across these very preliminary early papers on how the gut microbiome can be associated with development of allergies. And I got interested in that. And I think you can't unknow these things, right? So right. I got yeah. super interested. And then the whole world of nutrition opened up to me, the whole world of environmental medicine opened up to me. And I realized that I was medicating my patients for mainly lifestyle choices. And I thought, why don't I just help people with their lifestyle choices? Because it's difficult to help patients in a traditional conventional setting. Back in the UK, I only had 10, 15 minutes per patient. It's yeah. just impossible to fit lifestyle discussions into that. And so I made a decision to go with lifestyle medicine. So that's what I do now. I coach clients by getting to the root cause of their chronic conditions and move them towards their health goals through lifestyle. Okay, I agree with you that lifestyle is super important. It plays a role in so many of the diseases that we're seeing now, spikes, as you mentioned, allergies. We've seen a tremendous increase in allergies. And yes, I have heard of the research that talked about the gut microbiome being a possible cause of the explosion, especially in, in children, we're seeing lots of increase in anaphylactic type of allergies. And still, I think that we have such a long way to go. I think another common misconception is that if you didn't have pain like I did, or you don't have constipation, or you don't have diarrhea, or any other gastrointestinal symptoms, then probably your gut health is okay, right? I think that's what people often assume, that they would see it in their gastrointestinal symptoms, mm -hmm. but that's just not the case. Right. And as doctors, we know that because even in conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, we, we learn about all these extra gastrointestinal manifestations, right? One of which is this rash, very itchy rash that you can get on your forearms called dermatitis herpetiformis. And that's a skin manifestation. And sometimes I have seen patients come to me with that and very little GI symptoms, but they may have other issues like anemia, fatigue, brain fog, which is mm -hmm. 
unexplained until they get this rash and then the penny drops like, oh, could you have inflammatory bowel disease? Let's scope you, let's biopsy you. And there we have the diagnosis. So I think that's why stepping back and looking at the body as a whole is so important because the gut doesn't just give you gut symptoms, right? What happens in the right. gut doesn't stay in the gut and it can actually manifest in so many different places. And I think one of the other things that we miss is the idea that perhaps no one in your family had issues. You're all eating the same thing. You may have friends who are living in the same place, eating the same thing. So no one really thinks about that. But the truth of the matter mm. is that each one of us is individual. Right. And how we process toxins is going to be different from even someone Absolutely. in our own home. Yeah, exactly. And so we think, oh, if we're going to see a problem with your home, like everybody's going to be sick. But that's just not the case. Yeah, either they're affected less or they're affected in different ways. And Correct. the thing is, the same root cause can cause different symptoms in different person, depending on your genetic predisposition, like what you were exposed to in your perinatal life and your epigenetics, your lifestyle. And so this is what I'm beginning to see is that I'm actually tackling very similar common root causes in a lot of my clients. And take something like ADHD, we automatically assume it's in the brain. It's a nervous system issue or yes. uh, maybe it's a psychological. There, there are so many different schools of thought, but it's only very recently that people have started to link it to gut health, inflammation, food, nutrition. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. And I'm very, very happy to see that. It's funny when you think about it, that you wouldn't really think about what you're eating could be causing some of the symptoms. Now that I see it, it's like, like you said, you can't unsee it. Right. Like, how did I not think that right. some of my symptoms in the past were tied to a potential issue with my gut health and maybe what I was eating, whether it would be if I had an issue with dairy or gluten or whatever the case may be, or additives or environmental mm. toxins. How did I not see that? But like you said, we were just not trained in it and all no. the doctors around us are not trained in it. Exactly. And I think it's even more important today because the amount of toxins in our environment is just increasing. Sadly so. Yeah. So it's I more mean, important for physicians to really have an understanding of this because we're going to see more patients who are impacted by it. Yeah. And the major colleges like the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have position statements now. AAP yes. have statements. So. Yeah, I think that we are increasingly seeing recognition in this area. We definitely need more scientific research to really define what the safe levels are, what the, the impacts are. But we certainly have a large growing database from animal and petri dish studies. And that, I think that should be cause for concern. We don't need to all be <laughs> living in fear, right. but I think we need to take precaution. We don't really take precautions. It's more like, let's see what happens. Right. And well, unfortunately, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The see what happens also sometimes can be, is it linked to cancer later on? And you wouldn't even know. I mean, we're expecting know. it to show as, oh, some physical symptom, then we can see it. But right. when we can't see development of infertility later on in life, then we're going to ignore it, unfortunately. And even that, that took many, many years to come to light too, right? It's not immediate. Yes. And what's, what is scary, what really blew my mind and shook me to the core 
was when I realized that out of the 80,000 chemicals that are registered for use with the EPA, only a handful have ever Mm. been tested in humans for safety. And that's just mind-blowing because when you think about pharmaceuticals, if there's ever any new pharmaceutical, they have to go through different phases of clinical trials to firstly prove that they're safe in humans first, right? That doesn't happen with chemicals. Why? Right. They're all just grandfathered in and just assumed to be safe. 60,000, I think, were Mm -hmm. grandfathered in. and. So that's what really got my back up and thought, okay, it doesn't feel like the agencies who are meant to protect us are looking out for us. So maybe we need to start doing something. And Mm -hmm. at the beginning, of course, all of this was thought to be like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist or you're woo-woo. Like, of course, like if it's on the shelf, it's safe. And it takes showing them the evidence like, by the way, no, <laughs> just because it's on the shelf yeah. doesn't mean that it's safe. There are very, very few studies that have looked at these chemicals. And I mean, in the EU, I think there's a lot more protection because they abide by the precautionary principle, which is that you have to prove something is safe before it can be used. Yes. Whereas in the US, you have to prove something is harmful before it's removed from use. Correct. So, yeah, even though we have animal studies that show that they are harmful, we still don't do No, because then they argue, well, it's not human studies. Right. It's animal (laughs) studies. Do you really want to be playing this game on humans? Like, it's just Mm -hmm. not even ethical to to do such a study, right? That's why most of these studies are epidemiological or petri dish studies. Yeah. There's a lot out there now about quote unquote detoxing. It's very trendy. We see all these supplements. And there might be teas and you need to take this so you can detox. And we're hearing all these things about chemicals. It would sound very logical that we need to try to detox our system. But what's the problem with that? Well, I think the the problem, again, is that people are looking for band-aids. They're looking for quick fixes, right? And Mm -hmm. detox just doesn't work like that. If you imagine, let's talk about bathtub. So imagine our detox organs, which is, by the way, For the Mm -hmm. listeners who don't know, it's your liver, it's your kidneys, it's your sweat glands, it's your lymph, it's your lungs, right? All of these organs help to eliminate toxins that we come across from our body. And if we imagine that as a bathtub, then the water coming in through the faucet is the toxins. And what we want is that these toxins, when they enter the bathtub, to be drained very efficiently out of us. Yeah. And so... You can start to see that if you have a lot coming in, that can stretch the capacity of these organs and you might start to get accumulation. Or if the drain is blocked, so if your organs are not functioning efficiently, then you can also start to get accumulation. And it's over time, the buildup of these levels in your body that eventually when the bathtub overflows, that's when you get symptoms. So the time leading up to that, you may feel nothing and therefore you think you're fine. And then it's when the tipping point comes that you get symptoms. And that's what happened with me. So the detox organs are working 24-7. So when people say, I'm going to detox or I'm going to detox my liver. Well, no, you don't need to do that. The organs are already working. Do we just need to support them so that they work 
optimally for us. A lot of these detox teas that you see, they're laxatives. So they help you poop, which is actually good for some people, like for people who are constipated. That's actually the first thing I get them to do, not through teas, though. It's through right. diet. It's in, in looking at what's underlying root cause of constipation. But constipation is super common. And if you're constipated, you're not able to detox because whatever your liver is doing to detox, all of that has to come out through your poop. And if you're not pooping, these toxins, when they are stuck in the gut, they can be reabsorbed. So what you're getting is right. this scenario where toxins are recirculating and they're not coming out through that drain. So what you're doing is in the bathtub, you're just stirring up these toxins. They're not exiting through the drain. One of the things is getting big, sorry to be graphic, but big proper poops, right? A lot of people say, oh yeah, I, I'm not constipated. Mm -hmm. And then when you ask them what the poop looks like, it's like, you know, right. little rabbit poops like pebbles or pellets or so, something like that, right. which isn't healthy. That's, right. not, that's constipation. So yeah, I, I think moving away from quick fixes and thinking about detox more of, as a lifestyle, because that's what we need to do now. These toxins right. are coming in, the faucet is open constantly. Even to the best of our abilities, we cannot avoid toxins now. That's just a reality. It is depressing. I know mm -hmm. I lose sleep over this, but ultimately we've got to focus on what we can do within our abilities. Even doing our best, we can't avoid it. And so right. in, we don't want to get to this point where we're so stressed out because stress is a toxin. It can actually downregulate our detox capabilities, cause leaky gut, cause dysbiosis. We don't want to be in a scenario where we're aiming to be 100% perfect in toxin reduction that we're stressed. So striking for this balanced lifestyle where you're trying to avoid as much as you can, but at the same time, supporting your detox organs through lifestyle. These are things you can do on a daily basis. We don't need to just go on like right, get horrible, a pill. right? Yeah, all horrible fasts where we're torturing right. ourselves, just drinking shakes. By the way, what are these shakes made of, right? Right. What are the additives that are in so many of these shakes? What about heavy metals, contaminants in these shakes? Do you know that you're not really putting more harmful things into your body when you're taking these shakes and teas and, and supplements? We need to look at detox as a lifestyle and support our organs through science-based way. And uh, that's why I actually created a course because there is so much misconception around detox. It's not about juice cleanses. It's not about supplements. It doesn't start there. It starts with lifestyle. That's so important. And we're going to put information about your course in the show notes. But Thank you. I think one of the big things is nutrition, right? So often I get a lot of patients who may say, well, what are the supplements I can take? Or what are the supplements that can help me? And the same thing goes for detox. But the foundation of gut health is nutrition. Why is nutrition oh, yeah. so important for gut health? Oh, wow. On so many different levels. I mean, firstly, all gut health is determined by two main things in my mind. One is the microbiome, which is the trillions of microbes in the gut, right? So these microbes actually can generate molecules like butyrate, which actually helps maintain a healthy gut lining, which takes me on to the second thing that maintains gut health, which is the lining. The lining of mm -hmm. your gut is only one cell layer thick, which means that it can be really easily damaged. And so we hear a lot about leaky gut. The proper medical term is increased intestinal permeability, 
the gut lining should be permeable enough to allow nutrients to come in, the good stuff, but it shouldn't be big enough to allow the bad stuff, the bacteria, the endotoxins to come in. But so many people are walking around with that bigger gap in the lining now that's leaking through all these toxins. So what you eat is actually the first point of contact with your gut. It starts in the mouth and then it goes down the food pipe. So whatever we put in our mouth can directly impact our gut health because we got to ask ourselves, are we eating foods that feed the microbiome? Because they're key to gut health, right? right? And the microbiome, these microbes, they feast on fiber, polyphenols, antioxidants in our diet. So are we feeding them the right food? Are we feeding them things that can harm them? Saturated fats, preservatives, additives. These can actually harm the microbiome. And then we've got to be asking, are we actually supporting the lining of the gut with the right nutrients as well? The gut lining needs key nutrients like zinc to maintain integrity. So are we feeding ourselves these nutrients and a standard American diet that's full of processed food is not going to contain these nourishing ingredients? So nutrition is absolutely key. We want to be focusing on getting lots and lots of plants into the gut to help the gut microbes and the lining. That's one of the things that makes me concerned when, and I don't go out and say this is the diet that everybody should be eating, but one of the things I'm concerned about is seeing the explosion in the keto diet or the paleo diet, which listen, it works for some people and power to you if that works for you. I'm not here to knock anything, but there's a potential lack of eating plants, as you said, and so very low fiber, right? What are your thoughts about the keto diet, paleo diet, and how it impacts Yeah, I'm with you. I think these diets can have a place. It's just, are we using them in the right places? The keto diet, for example, has been studied in children with prolonged intractable epilepsy. Yes. Possibly through the alteration in their gut microbiome, I read a paper. So it's so interesting because the keto diet is changing the microbiome in the gut and that's communicating with the brain that's affecting and helping them with seizures. But at the same time, I've also seen women crash their thyroid on a keto diet. Why? Because you're effectively telling your body when you're on a keto diet that you're going into starvation mode. Right? You're pushing mm-hmm. the body, you're removing the carbs, which the body recognizes as a fuel, pushing it into the survival mode in order to get to this ketosis level. And what does ketosis say to the body? We're out of food, like we're running out of fuel here, like you're in survival right. mode. What happens when you're in survival mode? Thyroid downregulates to try and preserve energy and also at the same time fertility. So keto diet it has a role. For most people, it's not going to be beneficial, in my opinion, because it lacks the key nutrient, fiber. It's just so low in fiber and so high in fat. Both of those things can harm your microbiome. So I'm not a fan of keto diet. It can give you short-term results with weight loss, but beyond that, it it can actually be harmful long-term, in my opinion. And going on to paleo, I actually have... No qualms with paleo diet that incorporates a lot of plants. So Mm -hmm. paleo 
it now is being interpreted as a meat-heavy diet, which I don't feel like the true paleo our ancestors who were right. paleo ate because we have fossils of their stools right. that show that they actually ate in excess of 100 grams of fiber per day. Per wow. day, that's huge, right? Like I think the average wow. American gets less than 10. Yeah, so I think like 10 to 15 or something. <laughs> right. And so if you're on a paleo diet, they're removing a lot of inflammatory foods, which is great, like refined sugar, dairy. That's all great. But the meat should be like a condiment on the side. Right. The focus should be on plants, which I do see some paleo doing, but the majority of paleo people, it's like, oh no, I've got to get my protein. I've got to get my meat in. And mm -hmm. then plants is the condiment, which I feel like the ratio there is probably right. off. We want to focus more on plants. And I'm not saying that you need to be totally vegan or anything like that. I'm no. not a vegan, yeah. but it's really just watching your intake of meat and not being super excessive and making sure you're getting plants. Because as we talked about, it's super important to get your fiber in. And especially, like you said, I see a lot of patients who do have constipation. And right. so that's something that can really help if you're yeah. struggling with that. Totally. Yeah. And you no, know, I see a lot of people that are on these gut healing protocols, right? It includes things like L-glutamine and they may even be taking butyrate supplements. And it's like, wow, we can get L-glutamine from food and mm -hmm. What's the best source of butyrate? It's our gut microbiome. Right. We have a butyrate factory in our gut. All we have to do is put in the raw material, which is fiber, right? And then you can save so much money. <laughs> right. I know there's over supplementation going on. Much. And we don't even know if you take mm -hmm. butyrate as a supplement, whether it can be utilized in the gut the same way that your endogenous cells, that factory generating butyrate can utilize. So... You could just be throwing money literally down the toilet. Right. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why people may feel better on keto or paleo is just one of the common veins of all of these. If we talk about Mediterranean diet or whole foods, plant-based or keto or paleo, it's like low processed food. We can all agree on low processed foods and trying to eliminate certain refined oils and yes. sugars. We can agree on that. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we see people feeling so much better because so many people are eating tons of processed food. And so that's part of the problem. Why are processed foods so bad for the gut? Well, firstly, it's devoid of fiber, right? So we just talked about that and why that's mm -hmm. so important. It's also devoid of the polyphenols, the antioxidants, which feed the gut microbiome. So we're talking about what it's lacking, but what does it contain instead? Usually it contains preservatives, additives, right? We have studies, animal studies mainly, that show things like the additives like sucralose can negatively impact the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. Usually they contain inflammatory oils as well. The omega-6s can be very high in saturated fat. And so those can also damage your gut microbiome, not to mention refined sugar, which features very highly in most processed food. And it's not just the sugar. When you refine a grain and make it a flour, white flour, for example, it can be absorbed just as fast and cause just as rapid an insulin spike as refined sugar. So all of that combined 
preservatives also matter for gut microbiome because what it's trying to do in the food is that it's trying to prevent bacteria causing the food to go off, right? right? And so when we eat that, what's that doing to our microbiome? And that may be why processed meat, for example, we know there's a huge link between processed meat and colon cancer. It's actually a, a known carcinogen for colon cancer. And that could be one of the mechanisms, the negative impacts on our gut microbiome. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think we don't pay attention to, oh, preservatives are okay for human consumption. Like you said, everything is so surface-based, but we've never really investigated what are the long-term impacts, how does it affect microbiome. I mean, that's something that's really completely ignored. So that's, you know, real part of the problem. Yes. You talk a lot on your social media about fermented foods and you do a lot of it yourself. Can you talk to us about why fermented foods are so important? Yeah. Fermenting is a very old practice, right? It was used to preserve food before refrigerators came about. But I think in the process, people realize how beneficial it could be for our health because the bacteria can actually produce nutrients for us that we wouldn't be able to derive from these foods. So they can actually Mm -hmm. produce vitamin K, the vitamin Bs in these foods. So you can actually get a boost in nutrient level from foods through the process of fermentation. And it can actually break down some of the less digestible ingredients. Some people, for example, may be intolerant to soy because they can't break down the soy protein. But through the process of fermentation, they can tolerate it better. So that's one advantage. But the other is it comes down to gut health again. I get asked Mm -hmm. a lot about probiotics, like what probiotic supplement do you recommend? And I say, none. (laughs) Right. Firstly, it depends on what you have. We do have studies that have shown certain specific strains to have beneficial effects for certain indications. If you have specific indications, by all means, if a doctor has prescribed it because of that specific indication, take it. But beyond that, if you're just you know looking for general gut health, there's zero place for a supplementation, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because you can cultivate a healthy microbiome, firstly through food. What you feed the microbiome determines how it grows. And we know that diversity, the more different strains of these bacteria in your gut, the healthier your gut health and the healthier your overall health. And so the first thing to do is going to be incorporating as many plant foods into your diet because each type of plant feeds a different subset of bacteria. When you're feeding them, they're happy and they're healthy. And in fermented foods, we know like a piece of kimchi, for example, can contain upwards of hundreds of different bacteria in that piece of kimchi. And what's in a probiotic pill? Maybe 10 strains max. Right. And then we don't even know if they can survive very well, to be honest, right? Exactly. Right. We don't know. The studies so far show that they don't take residence, like they don't affect. They're passing through. <laughs> they're passing through. They're like vitamins. And, and fermented food probably has the same effect, but you're not spending hundreds of dollars a month on these fermented foods. Right. And it's also providing the fiber, which is really important. So maybe providing probiotics in the form of fermented food that's in combination with a prebiotic, which is the fiber it comes packaged with, 
is more beneficial, we don't know yet. And so, yeah, that's why I always have fermented food in my fridge and I will have several different types because, again, a different type of plant will produce different probiotics when you ferment it. And so incorporating a variety is, is really important. You don't have to make fermented foods like Vivian, but if you're interested in doing it, you can go to her Instagram and she shows everything from making um, kimchi to sauerkraut. You do also sourdough bread, which also is a process of fermentation, can help to break down the gluten if you're doing it with gluten-containing um, flour. So that's a better option if you're someone who eats bread and gluten-containing bread. If you are baking the bread, it does not kill the probiotics. Well, yeah, it does. Like, so you're not eating it for the probiotics and you're not eating it for the bacteria. But during the fermentation process, those bacteria producing beneficial compounds for us that stays in the bread, it is heat resistant. So that's why eating fermented foods like miso, for example, it's often cooked too, right? But right. it still can give you those health benefits. The other thing I think which we haven't touched upon, because we think about nutrition, we think about maybe toxins, but actually stress and our mental health can also impact our gut microbiome, oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible. There's actually studies now showing how stress can negatively affect our microbiome almost immediately. And we know stress can down-regulate secretory IgA, which is an antibody that sits at the gut lining that helps to protect us against pathogens. Two people can go to the same meal and one gets food poisoning, the other one doesn't. Why? It's because yeah. of things like the secretory IgA and the microbiome that can actually help fend off these pathogens. So stress can down-regulate our secretory IgA. It can actually cause leaky gut as well. And you know, what's really interesting is that the first two weeks of my detox course, I just get my students to manage their stress better. I talk about it and people are like, when are you going to talk about supplements? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, if you don't get this piece right, forget supplements. You're just flushing it down the toilet, literally, because if you imagine our body's like a car, if you mm -hmm. don't manage your stress, you're driving that car in neutral. No matter right. how much fuel you put in, <laughs> like the most beautiful, amazing fuel you can put in, you pressing that gas pedal, it's not going to move. And that's what I see. People bang their heads against the wall so much, they're not getting any results because they're popping pills, these protocols. Maybe it'll mm -hmm. work for a while, but the car's not driving anywhere fast because stress is holding them back. Yeah, I think it comes down to, again, our idea of health, that we need to treat it with a pill or a supplement. That's what we've been conditioned to do in mm -hmm. our healthcare system is that we need to do this rather than starting with things like reducing your stress or taking care of your nutrition, all of those things that can be super important, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think our body actually has the innate ability. Every cell in our body wants to reach that equilibrium of health. It's just that we're exposed to things that hold it back from doing that. So like you said, we don't need to look for the external sources anymore. Our body has 
what it needs and we just need to provide the nutrients and the support and it can run provided we are removing the barriers but you don't need a fancy supplement certain medications are necessary of course but at the same time you have to take care of your mental health your nutrition getting good movement getting outdoors all of those things are super important overall we need to really look at the big picture rather than just focusing on these symptoms that we have yeah, so this exactly. is lifelong everyone's going to age but we want to age in good health right absolutely it's about health span and not about lifespan right We're getting lifespan right now right. keeping people alive for a long time but they don't necessarily have health span anymore so yeah that's what we want to aim for and speaking of stress one of the things that happens when you learn all this new information it can feel a little bit overwhelming so this might be new for someone listening. Some of these things that we're talking about may seem very new to you. And so I'm huge on not getting overwhelmed because I don't want anyone to get so overwhelmed that they don't make changes. I think it's super important to just, you know, one step at a time. What kind of things do you recommend to your clients for starting this journey of taking care of their gut health? First step is like you said, not to get overwhelmed and just celebrate the fact that you now have the knowledge and awareness to make a change. That is actually the biggest step, right? Most people walking around don't know what you know. And if you're here listening to this, I want to congratulate you because you're already way ahead of the game. So that's the first thing is to celebrate that and to feel really good about it. Because I think we can only take action when we feel good about ourselves. And feel good that you're starting on a journey. And it is a journey. See it as a journey. Mm -hmm. It's one step at a time. We don't need to be incorporating like 40 plants and fermented foods and doing all the mm -hmm. ferments at home ourselves right at this minute. You can only do what you can. And the stress is real. I have to remind myself every day incorporate stress reduction techniques because I get entangled in the stress of modern day life as well. The first step is recognizing that you're on a journey and then it's about where you are at. So everybody's at different places. If you're starting from a place where you're eating a lot of processed food, like you just said, start with that. If you're eating three meals of meals that you've bought from Costco, maybe reduce that to two and then over time go to one and then every other day, just go at the pace that you can manage. Because I know learning to cook is a big deal for a lot of people mm -hmm. as well. And then start to look at better options. So maybe options where the food that's prepared is whole foods. So go for salads instead of processed things like burgers or pizzas. So making that switch. But if you're already cooking for yourself and things like that, then you may want to start to incorporate more plant diversity. So if you're mm -hmm. eating, let's say, 10 different plants per week, maybe add an additional two when you go to the farmer's market. Look around and see what's available or you go into the grocery store. What I love telling my clients is look for what's on sale because firstly, it mm -hmm. saves money. And secondly, it's usually what's in season. So it tastes, it tastes better, better. It has more nutrition as well. And if you can, and I know it's not affordable for everyone, go organic as much as you can. And mm -hmm. I'm not 100% organic. It's just so hard to be. But yes. the Environmental Working Group has a resource called 
the Dirty Dozen Clean 15. So if you look that up, just Google EWG Dirty Dozen. Those are 12 foods that have been shown to have the highest pesticide residues. So try to optimize those organic if you can. I think it depends on where you are in your journey, but absolutely the message is going to be for your gut health, increasing the amount of fiber, increasing the amount of plant diversity as much as you can, adding in the polyphenols, the antioxidant-rich foods, your blueberries, cacao, the spices, the herbs. And then, you know, that it's a journey. I'm still on a gut healing mm-hmm. journey, right? Yep. I'm working on my stress every day. I'm trying to exercise more. So nobody's perfect. And, you know, we can only do what we can manage within the time limits, the financial restraints. I think what you said about celebrating the small things is really important because there used to be a time when I would be like, well, if I can't make it to go work out for an hour, then forget it. Or if I can't eat super healthy this week, then forget it. But if you can get one vegetable in this week, that's better than zero. If you can go for a walk for 10 minutes, that's better than zero. That's my approach Absolutely. with a lot of my patients is take everything as a win mm-hmm. wherever you are, start there, and then just work up a couple minutes a day. And a very easy thing I feel like everybody can incorporate actually is time-restricted eating. Yes. I'm a big fan of that. During our waking hours, we're eating too many times and for too long. And the gut doesn't have time to rest anymore. And there's this thing called the migratory motor complex, which is like the the street sweepers in our gut. It like sweeps the bad stuff away and it doesn't work when we're eating. So when we're eating, that MMC is not sweeping. And so the more time you're spent eating, the less your gut is moving. And so you don't have to do like fasts. Just go overnight, 13 hours, no food after dinner. People like to snack when they're watching TV, things like that. No, food just sneak in somehow, right? And so like people are eating until 9, 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. and then they go to bed and they start the day eating breakfast at 7. So yeah, yeah, like leaving a good overnight rest and then try to not snack in between your meals. I know it can be hard uh, if you have cravings and things like that, but you can fill those cravings with things like ginger tea, cinnamon tea. It's surprising. A lot of the time when I have cravings and I feel like I'm hungry, I'm actually thirsty. Yes. So when I drink water Definitely. or like a herbal drink, it, it the craving goes away. That could be a really low-hanging fruit that's doesn't require hours and yeah, hours of I agree. You don't have to change a ton of the things right away. Maybe just changing the timing. That can be a huge place to start. I do the same thing. It, it impacts your sleep too. If you are eating right before bed, you may not realize it, but it is impacting your sleep. Yes, definitely. And then sleep can affect on your gut health too. Mm-hmm. So like everything is connected. Yeah, definitely. I am a huge proponent of supporting mental health, and I think it's so important to find joy in our everyday lives because often we are just going through the day, not really paying attention. What is something that brings you joy, or how do you cultivate joy in your own life? I think um, gratitude journal. So I meditate almost every day, and at the end, I will make sure that I write three things that I'm grateful for every day because our brain is wired for negativity bias, right? So we automatically seek out 
bad things or like we worry about yes. things that may not happen naturally. It's important to try and rewire it the other way and force your brain to look for the good in your life, even if it naturally doesn't want to. So yeah. I find that practice really, really helpful because then during the day, I'm starting to notice things that bring me joy more and more. Even it's just, oh, wow, the roses are blooming in my garden. That brings right. me so much joy now, whereas maybe before I wouldn't even notice it. Right. Definitely. I think that's a great suggestion. And initially, sometimes something like a meditation practice or a gratitude journal kind of seems foreign, mm -hmm. especially like you said, if you're in a place where you're not really feeling happy or grateful for certain things. But you give yourself grace and start five minutes of meditation. And I think that's something that can be beneficial. Just start a few minutes. Yes. And for those who absolutely can't meditate, and I have plenty of clients who just like, nope, I just cannot do it. Don't tell me to do it. And the reason why I'm so experienced with it is because my husband was just like, I cannot meditate to save my life. Just don't tell me to do it. <laughs> I tried so many different methods. Breath work is really good uh, for yes. those who can't meditate because it always feels physical. Like meditation feels passive. Like you're yes. sitting there, you're like, mm, I don't know what to do anymore. With breath work, you're focusing on breathing. So you can start with a box breath. There's so many different types. Look into that if you don't like meditation. Yeah. Another good one is body scanning because you're listening mm -hmm. to someone really take you through the meditation or even guided imagery can be helpful if totally. you are just like, oh, my mind keeps drifting, which is normal, by the way. If your mind is drifting when you're meditating, that's normal. Your, exactly. your mind isn't going to be blank and empty. So it's totally normal. But if yeah. again, if you don't feel like it's for you, then try some of the other options. Yeah. And I, I love that you focus on mental health. It's just so important and not talked about enough. And at the end of the day, mm -hmm. our brain is the ultimate conductor of this orchestra that is our body, right? All the yep. organs are the different instruments and the brain is the conductor like... Okay, you can ovulate now. <laughs> okay, right. this is your body weight and your gut health is going to be like this and this is how much you're going to detoxify. So we got to get this right first. Yeah, I know conventional medicine, we separate the mind and the body, but the mind and the body, they're one. We need to start yeah. thinking in that way that what goes on in our mind impacts our body. And I know a lot of traditional medicine, that's part of traditional medicine practices, right. like traditional Chinese medicine, things like that mm -hmm. is an Ayurveda. But in conventional right. medicine, for some reason, we've completely separated the two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In tra traditional Chinese medicine, the gut and the liver is key for almost everything. Right. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I learned so much. I'm sure listeners learned a lot. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your work. It's amazing. You're amazing. Keep up the great work. And it's thank you yeah, so been much. such a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Where can listeners find you? Thank you. I have an Instagram account. So my handle there is at plateful.health. So that's P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L dot H-E-A-L-T-H. I also have a website. So that's www.platefulhealth.com. And if you go to either of those, there's plenty of um, information there. And I think you said you were going to kindly share my how to reduce toxins download with your listeners. Yes, it's a free guide. We'll put that in the show notes where to get the free guide for reducing toxins. It's packed with information. Definitely download that. 
Thank you. Yeah. So that's a good place to start because I put things into a step-by-step guide. And I also have a detox course, as we mentioned earlier, which is a science-based approach to detoxification. No gimmicks, no band-aids or quick fixes. It's about utilizing food and everyday lifestyle measures to optimize and support detoxification. That's a great option if you don't have the ability to work one-on-one with a practitioner to help you with gut health and optimizing your own natural detox system. Vivian has a wonderful course for that, so definitely check that out. She has so much information on Instagram. I am such a huge fan of her Instagram. Please, please, please follow her if you're not. And her website also, she has tons of information and resources on different products that you can use that can help to try to reduce toxins in your environment. So please check that out as well. And we will put all that in the show notes. Thank Thank you you so so much, much. Vivian, again. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Shala. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. The fastest way for chemicals to enter our bodies outside of an injection is through inhalation. And these are chemicals that we're breathing in every single day, all day, every day. This is a little bit of a hard one sometimes because we love our home ambiance and like smells like peaches and cream or whatever. Do like a scent detox. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That was a hard one for me, actually, because I was one of those women that was addicted to all the plugins, all the sprays and... To be honest, now I really can't even walk past the store in the mall that sells all these things. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Those products contain, among other things, volatile organic compounds and benzenes and toluenes, and these are carcinogens, which are also just not great to be around. They're also utilizing phthalates, a very well-established endocrine disruptor. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.